This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, I continue my two-part conversation with Justin Driver, the author of the new book, The Schoolhouse Gate, Public Education, the Supreme Court, and the Battle for the American Mind. In today's episode, Justin recounts his biography from growing up in Washington, D.C. to clerking for two Supreme Court justices. Uh, When I graduated from college, I very much thought I was going to be a public school teacher for the rest of my life. I got taught AP U.S. history and civics to ninth graders. And when I was doing that, I had some vague sense that there were constitutional decisions that shaped the schoolhouse, but I would have been hard-pressed to identify, say, Tinker versus Des Moines. Justin takes us through some of the Supreme Court cases involving public schools that he thinks are most important, but that receive little attention today. If there's any, as I say, single goal that I have for this book, that it's that it's that it elevates the salience of corporal punishment and invites the Supreme Court to revisit this issue, because I don't think that the jurisdictions that retain this practice at this late date are going to abandon it on their own. He also looks to the future of Supreme Court cases in education, given the recent confirmation of Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh, when he was in private practice, wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal where he suggested that uh, race-conscious measures should be almost automatically regarded as unconstitutional. And so I think that those are two areas where the current court could lurch to the right uh, in the area of uh, students' rights. Justin Driver is the Harry N. Wyatt Professor of Law at the University of Chicago Law School. His book, The Schoolhouse Gate, is receiving rave reviews. The New York Times called it indispensable, while the Washington Post called it masterful. Justin Driver, welcome to Fresh Ed. Glad to be with you, Will. Thanks. Another tactic that you talk about um, in the sort of post-Brown era is this idea of colorblindness. Can you explain how that has been used to sort of advance a particular agenda that might be counter to what Brown ruled? Yeah, so uh, the colorblind notion of the 14th Amendment says that uh, governmental entities are almost always uh, prohibited from taking account of race uh, no matter the purpose. And so Justice, Chief Justice Roberts' opinion in Parents Involved can be seen as being about a colorblind vision of constitutional law. And of course, that vision of constitutional law has important implications for our higher education in thinking about the realm of uh, affirmative action. And this is, uh, you know, of course, a subject of a lawsuit that's involves Harvard College right now. Interestingly, in the Parents Involved case, Justice Kennedy uh, sort of disavowed the notion that the Equal Protection Clause requires colorblindness. He voted to invalidate the programs in Louisville and Seattle because they classify individual students according to race, Uh, but he did insist uh, that schools could take account of race, therefore not be colorblind, when they are drawing district boundaries in an effort to bring about racial integration or when they are citing schools when they were building a new school, they can be aware of the racial demographics of the city as a whole. 
and try to foster racial integration in that way. So this is one area where we may uh, see some, um, uh, say, his replacement, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, take a more conservative line in this area. So it's it's quite interesting that, um, you know, th- what you said at the beginning of our conversation where schools are typically the first encounter of the government for people, for young adults, for, for children, for citizens. Um, but yet we see this struggle constantly of constitutional rights stopping at the schoolhouse gate, to use the title of your book. So what have you found to be sort of the common arguments in favor of limiting the Supreme Court's reach into schools? Yeah, there are a host of arguments that recur in this area. Perhaps the foremost is that people say, well, Supreme Court justices are not teachers and they don't know what's happening in public schools. Um, They also say that the schools are quintessentially local endeavors and therefore the federal government should uh, play no role whatsoever in this area. And then perhaps the other uh, final reason would be that uh, the Constitution of the United States does not mention education. I don't find any of those arguments uh, persuasive. And when one notes that all three of these arguments were advanced by the proponents of Jim Crow during the era of Brown versus Board of Education, it seems to me that we should all be Uh, less uh, accepting of uh, the power of those arguments. This isn't isn't to say that every dispute in the schoolhouse should make its way into a federal courthouse, but it does suggest that we should not just reflexively accept those arguments. So I want to ask how you first got involved in studying education law like you know where where did you end up going to school in america like public school or private school or you know what what's your background in schooling and legal issues in america yeah so i grew up in washington dc i grew up in southeast washington dc east of the anacostia river starting from a very young age i traveled way to upper northwest washington Uh, the most privileged segment of Washington, D.C. And in order to do that, I caught a bus to two different subway lines and then had a long walk. And as I would undergo this daily trek round trip, I would think, what am I gaining as a result of this journey? Conversely, what are my neighbors not gaining? Um, I can remember learning about Brown versus Board of Education right around 1985 and thinking that in the nation's capital, within shouting distance of the Supreme Court's Marble Palace, there are still some schools that are all black. And that suggested to me that there's often a large gap between law on the books and life on the streets. Uh, and then when I got, uh, when I graduated from college, I very much thought I was going to be a public school teacher for the rest of my life. I got certified to teach public school and Uh, taught AP U.S. history and civics to ninth graders. And when I was doing that, I had some vague sense uh, that there were constitutional decisions that shaped the schoolhouse, but I would have been hard-pressed to identify 
say, Tinker versus Des Moines. And so one of the goals that I have for this book is to render in an accessible way uh, the origins of students' constitutional rights and the contours of students' constitutional rights in a way that uh, not just lawyers, but ordinary folks, including you know educators and principals and even enterprising high school students uh, can understand. And so that's sort of you know one of the major audiences for this book. And eventually you end up um, being a clerk for two Supreme Court justices. I think it was Justice Breyer and also Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, did you end up talking to them a lot about education and you know constitutional issues inside public schools? I did, yes. Uh, both Justice Breyer and Justice O'Connor played no small role in motivating me to undertake this project, not by directly encouraging me, but uh, through my interactions with them. Uh, you know, Justice O'Connor, when I was with her, was a retired justice, and she had begun to shift her attention to thinking about the importance of civics. She was very disheartened to think about the way in which many young people don't understand even foundational concepts of our government. And so she was interested in trying to promote civic awareness about the separation of powers. My goal here is to do a similar sort of thing. That is to say, I believe that if students can think about their own rights as they exist within the schools, that it may make studying the Constitution a more accessible, uh, you know, sort of document. Um, and so I do hope that this will make people have greater amounts of awareness of constitutional rights generally. But if you can reach students at an impressionable age uh, in a way that they will have a, a great ability to apprehend what's going on, I think that that will lay an important foundation. Justice Breyer was also important. When I was with him, two of the cases that I write about in the book were decided, the Bong Hits for Jesus case and also the Parents Involved case. And he dedicated enormous amounts of time to thinking about both of these cases and in doing so underscored to me uh, the importance of constitutional decisions in schools for our nation's larger constitutional order. You know, his father was a... Uh, an attorney for the school board in San Francisco, and he would uh, often talk about how important that work was. And so um, both Justice Breyer and Justice O'Connor uh, did play, as I say, a significant role in motivating me to think about this work. Was there ever a time where you disagreed with them on some educational issue? I hold both of the Supreme Court justices in very high esteem. Um, I was, I felt very lucky to be a law clerk there, and I viewed it as my job to help them with their jobs. Um, you know, I uh, now view uh, the Bong Hits for Jesus case in a way that is different from how Justice Breyer would have resolved it. Justice Breyer would have resolved the case along grounds of something called qualified immunity and therefore not reached the underlying First Amendment question. He didn't go far as to, so far as to say that uh, Joseph Frederick did not have a First Amendment right here, but he just wouldn't have reached the question. I would have, uh, you know, now today certainly have joined uh, the opinion that uh, Justice Stevens wrote saying that uh, punishing Joseph Frederick for this sort of speech 
violated his his freedom of speech rights. So returning to some of these cases and topics that your book very carefully details, both the the public opinion, the justice opinions, the even the the legal opinions in, in a lot of these journals that are published at the time. One of the topics that really stuck out to me was corporal punishment. I had absolutely no idea that this was still legal in America, let alone practiced, well, quite a lot in a few states. And more importantly, that there was a clear racial difference between which students were receiving corporal punishment and which were not. And in this case, it was more African-American students uh, receiving corporal punishment. So why, you know, has the, the court ruled on corporal punishment and what was some of their logic behind these rulings? Yeah, this is the issue that I care the most about that I cover in the entire book. Uh, the, in my view, scandalous persistence of corporal punishment. The Supreme Court in the 1970s had an opportunity to rein in corporal punishment in a case called Ingram versus Wright. The case arose from truly egregious facts. James Ingram was a middle school student in Florida, and he was on stage with some of his friends during an assembly. And he was instructed to depart the stage and did so with an insufficient sense of alacrity. And for that pretty, you know, classic middle school behavior, he was summoned to the principal's office to receive five licks in the parlance. And that is to say he was going to be struck with a two foot long wooden paddle. When his turn arose, he protested his innocence and two assistant principals grabbed him, bent him over the principal's desk, held down his arms and his legs, and he received not five licks, but 20 licks. This beating was so savage that even three days later, he had a bruise that was six inches in diameter that was tender, swollen, and purplish in color, and also oozing fluid. Uh, you know, so you'd be hard pressed to imagine a more uh, sort of shocking set of facts than those that existed at Charles R. Drew Junior High School, James Ingram School. It was an all-black school, and James Ingram's treatment was part of a larger reign of terror that existed, where students were beaten for sitting in the wrong seat for wearing the wrong socks to gym class, uh, you know, for just incredibly minor infractions. And the school district, when they defended this policy, ended up making matters worse. Uh, there was a principal from a school in Miami Beach who said, oh, no, we don't use corporal punishment in this school. We have a predominantly Jewish population and they understand oral persuasion. The implication there, of course, is that the black students at Charles R. Drew Junior High School understand only brute force. And so the Supreme Court of the United States, it was a very odd opinion, a five to four decision. Justice Powell said this doesn't qualify as punishment for constitutional purposes. The Eighth Amendment, of course, uh, prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, but Justice Powell said that, in effect, means cruel and unusual punishment that stems from a criminal conviction. And so it was a very surprising decision because only a few years earlier, the federal courts got rid of what was called the strap in prison, meaning hitting inmates. And people thought, 
Well, if you can't hit people who have been convicted of crimes for not following orders, there's no way in the world that you're going to be able to hit public school students. Uh, but the Supreme Court didn't see it that way. And exactly as you suggest, Will, this is not just a historical uh, you know, artifact. Uh, corporal punishment still exists. There are 19 states that have it. Uh, but in some ways, that overstates its prevalence because there are five states that account for more than 70% of the instances of corporal punishment. And if there's any, as I say, single goal that I have for this book, that it's that it's that it elevates the salience of corporal punishment and invites the Supreme Court to revisit this issue, because I don't think that the jurisdictions that retain this practice at this late date are going to abandon it on their own. And what is the constitutional issue at play for corporal punishment in your eyes? Yeah. So uh, the strongest claim would be uh, the Eighth Amendment claim. Uh, the And I think that this is an argument that would appeal to liberals, but also the libertarian inflected vision of uh, constitutional law that is ascendant in some right-leaning circles. If you're a libertarian, you have a skepticism of state authority. And in what instance could it be uh, starker where the state is exercising dominion over an individual than physically hitting someone with a foreign object. I should say that public school students are the sole remaining group in American society that governmental figures can strike with impunity. Wow. I mean, that leaves me speechless. Another issue today is, and we hear it more and more, from politicians is that we need to start arming teachers to prevent lone shooters with the rise of mass shootings in, in American schools. What are some of the constitutional issues that you see when it comes to arming teachers, when it comes to police officers inside schools, as we see more and more of that happening? You know, what sort of issues arise constitutionally? Yeah, so the Supreme Court's case involving the Second Amendment is a case called Heller versus District of Columbia. It's written by Justice Scalia and did confer some uh, limited individuals' right to bear arms, but the opinion was quite careful to say that it nothing in the opinion should be understood to disturb uh, regulations involving firearms in sensitive government buildings, and it particularly mentions public schools. So I've seen some claims that the Second Amendment uh, should make it so that uh, laws prohibiting guns in public schools are impermissible. That's a very difficult argument to square with Heller itself. Um, it's, of course, true that uh, there have been a number of uh, truly upsetting and deeply disturbing incidents involving firearms. Indeed, massacres is not too strong a word. And thinking about Columbine and Newtown and Parkland, uh, you know, and so there's no doubt that uh, many judicial opinions refer to our post-Columbine era. I am sensitive to the needs for school safety. I take that very seriously. And I don't think that if a school wishes to have metal detectors that the Constitution should be understood to prohibit those efforts. I do also think at the same time that we need to have a realistic approach to the likelihood of a school shooting that's going to happen at any particular school. I came across a statistic that suggested that any given school in America 
and expect a school shooting roughly once every 6,000 years. Uh, and so, again, that's not, it's to say that these are rare events. They are high salient, highly salient events, uh, but we should not believe uh, that uh, a school shooting is a likely event where our, where our children, say, attend schools. And another issue that seems to be on the minds of many Americans today is illegal immigration. Uh, we have Donald Trump constantly talking about this caravan of basically migrants from, from South America, Latin America, moving their way up through Mexico to the Mexican-American border, hoping to seek asylum um, from all sorts of various troubles from where they came from. In terms of immigration and unauthorized immigration, has the court ruled on anything related to immigration and education? Yeah, so there's a really important case that too few people know about called Plyler versus Doe, which was decided in the early 1980s. That case involved a Texas statute that sought to exclude unauthorized immigrants from uh, Texas public schools. The Supreme Court of the United States invalidated that measure uh, and said that it's unconstitutional to bar and affect the children of unauthorized immigrants from the nation's public schools. Some constitutional law professors have tried to minimize the importance of that case. They say, well, Texas was the only state in the nation that had such a law at that time, and so we should not view the Supreme Court's intervention as momentous. They say, in effect, that only those cowboys down in Texas would be drawn uh, to this sort of a measure. But we know very well today as your question suggests, Will, that anxieties about unauthorized immigration are far from confined to the nation's border. And so I view Plyler versus Doe as so significant because had the Supreme Court not, in effect, interred the Texas measure, there's no doubt uh, that other states would have passed similar legislation. And so as a result of the Plyler versus Doe decision, millions of uh, children have been able to receive an education who otherwise would have been denied one. And so rather than viewing that as some insignificant decision of marginal import, I think the Plyler versus Doe is among the most significant decisions that the Supreme Court has ever issued. Hmm. I mean, it, obviously it had a huge impact on access to education, which is seen as such a yeah, um, an idea that so many people in, in the world of education want to, to advance. Yeah, I should say one more thing about Plyler versus Doe, by the way, that I fear that the current court could revisit that issue. John Roberts, when he was a young attorney working in the Reagan Department of Justice, co-authored a memorandum suggesting that Plyler versus Doe was incorrectly decided. Uh, you know, Justice Kennedy, who's now no longer on the court, never weighed in expressly on Plyler versus Doe, but I strongly believe that he would have found it to be correctly decided. I could quite easily imagine uh, his successor thinking that it was wrongly decided. And so I fear that states are going to enact legislation that is designed to invite the Supreme Court to revisit that issue. And if the court were to reverse course, uh, that would have calamitous consequences for our constitutional order. That brings up a very interesting point. Um, throughout your book, you really focus on the court's composition. 
uh, and you focus in on these different justices and and sort of the different majority opinions that they could form, you know, nine to zero or sometimes eight to one or sometimes five to four. We now live uh, with a Supreme Court that is um, deeply divided ideologically, um, but Justice Roberts is now seen as sort of the quote-unquote swing vote, which I'm not sure if that even is the right way to describe it, but he sits sort of in the middle ideologically. Um, So what do you see if you were to sort of think about the future um, of the Supreme Court and education? What do you see happening in terms of student constitutional rights? Yeah. So in addition to the Plyler versus Doe decision potentially being in flux, imagine a couple of other areas that uh, Justice Kennedy's departure and Justice Kavanaugh's joining the court uh, could make a difference. So I think about uh, the Establishment Clause involving religion. Uh, The Supreme Court has, in my view, done a pretty good job of uh, making sure that public schools are not places where students are being uh, proselytized to. Uh, When Kavanaugh was uh, in uh, private practice, he co-authored a brief uh, casting doubt on some of this jurisprudence in a case called Santa Fe versus Doe, where a public school had students to deliver uh, prayers over at a, at a high school football game over the school's loudspeaker. Justice Kennedy thought that did violate the Establishment Clause, but if Kavanaugh continues to hold the view that he expressed as an attorney, then the area of religion in public schools is a potentially hot-button area. Another area to keep an eye on would be uh, the legitimacy of race-conscious actions taken by school boards. We spoke about parents involved uh, uh, earlier, and Justice Kennedy departed from the rest of the GOP-appointed justices in finding that some race-conscious measures were permissible. Kavanaugh, when he was in private practice, co-authored, pardon me, he wrote a, a piece for the Wall Street Journal where he suggested that Uh, race-conscious measures should be almost automatically regarded as unconstitutional. And so I think that those are two areas where uh, the current court could lurch to the right uh, in the area of uh, students' rights. So looking across the history of Supreme Court rulings, you know, what, what can we learn? One of the most important lessons that I draw from this research is that the Supreme Court has an especially vital duty to protect constitutional rights within the schools. Uh, The court's decision in Barnett from 1943 makes this very point in a really powerful way. That case uh, involved requiring students to pledge allegiance to the American flag. Jehovah's Witnesses believed that reciting the Pledge of Allegiance violated their religious faith. Justice Jackson wrote an opinion for the court that invalidated that measure, and he said that uh, the freedom of speech involves a corollary right not to speak. But more important than any single line from that opinion is his insistence 
that the school is a vital theater for constitutional law because, Justice Jackson said, if we discard constitutional rights within schools, then we teach youth to discount constitutional principles as mere platitudes. And he says, we risk strangling the free mind at its source. And I can't imagine a more powerful and important lesson than the one that uh, Justice Jackson gave to us in the 1940s. Well, Justin Driver, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It really was a pleasure of talking today. Thank you, Will. I really enjoyed our time together. Justin Driver is the Harry N. Wyatt Professor of Law at the University of Chicago Law School. His new book is The Schoolhouse Gate, published by Pantheon earlier this year. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. An original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.